We need to say a few thank yous. The first one going to Arts Council England. And also, we want to say thank you to our sponsors, Ledbury Funeral Services and Oops-a-Daisy Florist. Please join me in welcoming John Marilla to the stage. Thank you. Not sleepwalking, but waking still with my hand on a gun and the gun in a mouth and the mouth on the face of a man on his knees. Autumn of 89, and I'm standing in a Section 8 apartment parking lot, pistol cocked, and staring down at this man, then up into the mug of an old woman staring, watering the single sad flower to the left of her stoop, the flower also staring. My engine idling behind me, a slow moaning bass line and the bark of a dead rapper nudging me on, all to say someone's broken hearted. And this man with the gun in his mouth, this man who, like me, is really little more than a boy, may or may not have something to do with it may or may not have said a thing or two, betrayed a secret, say, that walked my love away. And why not say it? She adored me. And I, her, more than anyone, anything in life up to then and then still for two decades after and therefore went for broke, Blacked out and woke, having gutted my piggy and pawned all my gold to buy what a homeboy said was a Beretta. Blacked out and woke, my hand on a gun, the gun in a mouth, a man who was really a boy on his knees. And because I loved the girl, I actually paused before I pulled the trigger. Once, twice three times, then panicked not just because the gun jammed, but because, what if it hadn't? Because who did I almost become there that afternoon in a section eight apartment parking lot, pistol cocked with the sad flower staring? Because I knew the girl I loved, no matter how this all played out, would never have me back. Day of damaged ammo or grime that clogged the chamber. Day of faulty rods or springs come loose in my fist. Day nobody died. So why not hallelujah, say amen or thank you? My mother sang for years of God, babes, and fools. My father, lymph-node masses fading from his x-rays, said surviving one thing means another comes and kills you. He's dead, and so I trust him. 
Dead, and so I'd wonder years about the work I left undone. Boy on his knees, a man now, risen and likely plodding his long way back to me. Fuck it. I tucked my tool like the movie gangsters do and jumped back in my bucket. Cold enough day to make a young man weep. Afternoon when everything or nothing changed forever. The dead rapper grunted, the bass line faded, my spirits whispered something from the trees. I left, then lost the pistol in a storm drain, somewhere between that life and this. Left the pistol in a storm drain, but never got around to wiping away the prints. Good evening. I'd like to just jump in and start with the poems. It's more dramatical that way. <laughs> um, thank you, everybody, for coming out. Thank you, Ledbury, for having us. Uh, it's been a, we've only been here a couple of days, but it's been a wonderful um, experience. I want to thank uh, Chloe, Becky, Adam, Alistair, um, Peter, and everyone, all the poets we've met. Um, uh, the Helen Manor for housing us, a beautiful place, um, and all of you. Uh, so, uh, I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is I'm already reading three more poems. Uh, the bad news is I write really long poems. <laughs> um, well, tonight I have two long poems and a shorter poem. Uh, but I'm reminded there's a poet I heard read in the U.S. once, and he said, um, you know, I only have two poets left, uh, two poems left, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, they're not quite that long, but uh, they're close. I've never spoken to anyone about this until now, until you. I slept once in a field beyond the riverbank, a flock of night jars watching over me. That was the summer a farmer found his daughter hanging in the hayloft and wished for the first time he had not touched her so. I wish I could say we were close, the girl and I, I mean, but only knew her to wave hello and walked her once halfway up the road before turning finally into my grandmother's yard. This was Ontario, California, 1983, which is to say there was no river and I wouldn't know a night jar if it bit me. But the girl was real. And the day they found her, that was real. And the dress she wore, same as on our walk. Periwinkle, she called it. I called it blue. Blue with bright yellow flowers all over. The dress and the flowers, they too were real. And on our walk, I remember we cut through the rail yard and came upon a dead coyote lying near the tracks, a frail and dusty heap of regret. He was companion to no one. Stone still staring, our shadows stretched long and covering the animal. She told me something I want to say about loneliness. 
Something I've since forgotten, the way I've forgotten, though I can see her face as if she were standing right here, her very name. Let's call her Dolores, from Dolor, Spanish for anguish. And whatever the sky, however lovely that afternoon, I remember mostly the wind. How a breeze unraveled what was left of a braid, and when I tried to brush from Dolores' brow a few loose strands, how she flinched, how she ran the rest of the way home, how I never saw her after that, except when they carried her from the barn, her periwinkle dress, her blue legs and arms, and the fields ablaze with daisies. I spent the rest of that summer in the rail yard with my dead coyote, watching trains loaded and leaving. All summer long, I'd pelt them with stones. All summer long, I'd use the stones to spell the girl's name. Dolores, maybe, in the dirt. All summer long, fire ants crawled over and between each letter, her name now its own small town. A season of heat and heavy rains washed my coyote to nothing, only teeth and a few stubborn bones that refused finally to go down. Weeks into autumn, Someone found the father hanged from the same groaning tie beams, the hayloft black with bottle flies. But that was 1983, Ontario, California, which is to say the bottle flies are dead, so too the ants, and neither field nor barn is where I left it. I've never spoken to anyone about this until now, until you. I gathered a handful of my coyote's bones, his teeth, and strung them all on fishing wire. A talisman toward off anguish, a talisman I hold out to you. Now, please come closer. Take this from my hand. So just two more poems. The Iliad and Odyssey, just kidding. <laughs> um, so in this book, I have a series of poems. Uh, they didn't start out as a series, but as I was writing them, they kind of started to coalesce and uh, form a series. Um, that are in conversation with certain elements of craft. I have uh, the first poem I read was called On Confessionalism. I have On Metaphor, uh, On Lyric Narrative. This poem that I'm about to read uh, uh, is called On Negative Capability. Uh, there's a poet who's pretty popular in the States, John Keats. Um, you might have heard of him. Uh, he coined this phrase uh, in a letter to his brother. 
And it's a phrase, he says, a uh, um, negative capability he defines as the ability to exist in uncertainties or mysteries without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. So the idea of um, being okay, not only okay, but courting the unknown. And it's something that uh, I encourage in my students when they're writing, uh, something I try to pursue in my own writing, but it's also a way of living, I think. And it's a way of living that I think I've been in pursuit of uh, before I had vocabulary for it since I was a child. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's all I'll say by way of introduction. On negative capability. White walls, mud flaps, Late night howling down a dark dirt road. Headlights killed and sold the world gone black, but for the two blunts lit, illuminating JoJo's fake gold grin. One girl each screaming from the back seat. We raced the red moon, raw dog the stars, his mama's car, my daddy's gun, public enemy number one, 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 one. Seventeen and simple, we wanna be hard rocks through rude boy fingers and gang signs at the sky. Blinded by the hot smoke rising like the sirens in the subwoofers. Blinded by the crotch funk rising from all our eager cells. We mashed in perfect murk a city block's length at least toward God, toward God, toward God knows what, when, or why. Neither Jojo nor I nor our two dates screaming had a clue or even care what the black ahead held. Come road, come night, come blackness and the cold, come havoc, come mayhem, come down God and see us. Come bloodshot moon running alongside the ride as if to warn us away from, as if to run us straight into some jagged tooth and jackal throated roadside ditch. When Jojo gunned the gas, we pushed into that night like a nest of sleeping jaybirds, shaken loose and plunging. Between our screams, a hush so heavy, we could almost hear what was waiting in the dark. And then I'll end with this poem. Um, it's a longer one. And uh, my wife tells me that I uh, say too much to introduce the poem, uh, but I feel you need context. Is this? Uh, okay. This is a long poem, so <laughs> I need to hydrate. Thank you for listening. Um, I look forward to hearing you read, Thomas. So. Um, I spent a number of years living in Washington, D.C. I went to uh, university there, and then I just stayed on um, for um, a little over a decade after. Uh, one evening, I'm walking down the street, and this bird comes out of nowhere, and I think I'm being attacked by the bird, and he flies away, comes back, attacks me some more, flies away. And I noticed that when he's flying away, he's flying to where there's another bird who has his foot caught in a car's closed door. He's kind of banging him, trying to bang himself against the car to get free. So the first bird was coming to get help. Yeah. And um, it was a really rough neighborhood. 
The only way to free the bird would have been to open the door and set it free, which means the bird would have been gone. I'd have been had holding an open car door with an alarm going off. Um, so I left. And uh, the bird kind of followed me for a while, and at some point the bird gave up on me. I wanted to write about that, and I wasn't able to write about that until years later when I came across this article in the New York Times about the jazz musician Eric, um, Eric Dolphy. And they said one of the things he used to do was to go into the parks or the forests of uh, his neighborhood or where he lived, and he would listen to bird calls, and he wanted to transcribe the bird calls because he said there was something earnest and honest in their song that he wanted to get into his own music. So when I read the article, I was able to go back and write this poem. That wasn't too bad, right? <laughs> um, it's a bit of a long poem, so, uh, so stay with me. Upon reading that Eric Dolphy transcribed even the calls of certain species of birds, I think first of two sparrows I met when walking home late night years ago in another city not unlike this, the one bird frantic attacking our thought the way she swooped down, circled my head, and flailed her wings in my face. How she seemed to scream each time I swung. How she dashed back and forth between me and a blood-red Corolla parked near the opposite curb. How, finally, I understood. I spied another bird, also calling, his foot inexplicably caught in the car's closed door, beating his whole bird body against it, trying, it appeared, to bang himself free. And who knows how long he'd been there, flailing. Who knows? He and the other I mistook at first for a bat. They called to me, something between squawk and chirp, something between song and prayer, to do something, anything. And like any good God, I disappeared. Not indifferent, exactly, but with things to do and most likely on my way home from another heartbreak. Call it 1997, and say I'm several thousand miles from home, by which I mean those were the days I made of everyone a love song, by which I mean I was lonely and unrequited. But that's not quite it either. Truth is, I did manage to find a few to love me, but couldn't always love them back. The Rasta law professor, the firefighter's wife, the burlesque dancer whose daughter blackened drawings with M's to mean the sky was full of birds the day her daddy died. I think his widow said he drowned one morning on a fishing trip. Anyway, I'm digressing. But if you ask that night, did I mention it was night? Why I didn't even try to jimmy the lock to spring the sparrow, I couldn't say truthfully that it had anything to do with envy, with wanting a woman to plead as deeply for me as these sparrows did one for the other. No. 
I've said something instead about the neighborhood itself. The car thief shot a block and a half east the week before. Or about the men I came across nights prior, sweat slicked and shirtless, grappling in the middle of the street. The larger one's chest pressed to the back of the smaller, bruised and bleeding both. I know you thought this was about birds, but stay with me. I left them both in the street, the same street where I'd leave the sparrows, the men embracing, and for all one knows, they could have been lovers. The one whispering an old, old tune into the ear of the other, baby, baby, don't leave me this way. I left the men where I'd leave the sparrows and their song. And as I walked away, I heard one of the men call to me, please, or help, or brother, or some such. And I didn't break stride. Not one bit. It's how I've learned to save myself. Let me try this another way. Call it 1977 and say I'm back west, south central Los Angeles. My mother and father at it again, but this time in the street, broad daylight and all the neighbors watching. One, I think his name was Sonny, runs out from his duplex to pull my father off. You see where I'm going with this. My mother crying out, fragile as a sparrow, Sonny fighting my father, fragile as a sparrow, and me, years later, trying to get it all down. As much for you, I'm saying, as for me. Sonny catches a left, lies flat on his back, blood starting to pool in his own wife wailing, my mother wailing, and traffic backed now half a block. Horns, whistles, and soon sirens. 1977, summer, and all the trees full of birds. Hundreds, I swear. And since I'm the one writing it, I'll tell you they were crying. Which brings me back to Dolphy and his transcribing. The jazz man, I think, wanted only to get it down pure, to get it down exact. The animal racking itself against the car's steel door. The animals in the trees reporting the animals we make of ourselves and one another, flailing, failing, stay with me now. Days after the dust-up, my parents took me to the park, and in this park was a pond, and in this pond were birds, not sparrows, but swans. And my father spread a blanket and brought from a basket some apples, in a paring knife. Summertime, my mother wore sunglasses and long sleeves. My father, now sober, 
cursed himself for leaving the radio, but my mother forgave him and said as she caressed the back of his hand that we could just listen to the swans. And we listened, and I watched. Two birds coupling, one beating its wings as it mounted the other. Summer 1977, I listened and watched. When my parents made love late into that night, I covered my ears in the next room, scanning the encyclopedia for swans. It meant nothing to me, then at least. But did you know the collective noun for swans is a lamentation? And is a lamentation not its own species of song? What a woman wails punch drunk in the street or what a widow might sing, learning her man was drowned by swans. A lamentation of them. Imagine the capsized boat, the panicked man struck about the eyes, nose, and mouth each time he comes up for air. Imagine the birds coasting away and the waters suddenly calm, either trumpet swans or mutes, the dead man's wife running for help, crying to any who'd listen, a lamentation, and a city busy saving itself. I'm digressing, sure. But did you know that to digress means to stray from the flock? When I left my parents' house, I never looked back, by which I mean I made like a god and disappeared as when I left the sparrows and the copulating swans, as when someday I'll leave this city, its every flailing, its every animal song. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, John. Um, so please join me in welcoming Thomas Lynch. To have uh, been here for that reading, John, is uh, that goes in the obituary too, because that was mighty work. And thank you for sharing it with us. I. Um, the great part about coming to Ledbury is you meet your countrymen. <laughs> we don't have a chance to meet in the United States, but, um, but yeah, we meet in Ledbury, and may it ever be thus. I, uh, this is, I think, my third trip to Ledbury in the past quarter century, and I'm so grateful that the volunteers and the uh, people who found time in their busy lives to put together a poetry festival. Uh, it's like uh, when, I, when I tell people that I'm a, a funeral director with a sideline in poetry, it's like, it's like being a proctologist with a sideline in root canal. Nobody wants any of it. But it's so to, see, to be outnumbered by dozens of people to hear us read poetry is really a, a very a generous thing, particularly on a sunny day, you'd wonder exactly how many of us really do need professional help with this. So, 
And it gives me an opportunity also to thank Neil Astley for bringing this book, uh, my new and selected poems, Bone Rosary, into being over here because I have found that with, uh, with a UK publisher, you get readers too, where so often I wonder if we have readers in the United States. We have people possessing our books sometimes, but here we have readers, people who will stop you on the street and say, and what about this? And uh, that's really a generous uh, thing and a great vote of confidence, so I'm permanently grateful to you for it, Neil, and thank you. <coughs> I'll begin with a, a poem. Um, uh, when I was here in, I think maybe five years ago, with the late, great Tony Hoagland, the bed of heaven to him. Um, I was traveling with an assistant. I was concerned, having entered the red zone of age and decrepitude, of, um, you know, of, uh, of dying uh, someplace and not knowing, um, nobody knowing how to get the corpse back home to my people. So I hired a young assistant to travel with who, to whom I would introduce to all the funeral directors in various locales <laughs> so she would know who to call on the occasion. To think that the Ledbury Funeral Service would sponsor poetry readings, <laughs> that's a step in the right direction. And, uh, and I have to think that maybe Corrine must have paid a visit there and said you'll have dibs on his, his uh, uh, corpse should he drop in your, uh, in your uh, postal zone. But thank you to you and to the local florists for keeping the lights on for poetry. Uh, exactly right, yeah. This is called Corrine Among the Fronds of Basil. One of the things that, one of the great uh, benefits I had during the lockdown, I live alone on a lake uh, with a big dog, the only mammal who could bide with me for any length of time, it turned out but my assistant Corrine uh, would come by three days a week and bring groceries and, and uh, you know, do whatever uh, errands had to be done if I needed prescriptions or things of that sort. She also took care of the garden, and one day in September of 2020, a dismal year on all accounts, uh, she showed up in a and said, we have to harvest the basil. There'll be a frost tonight, she had heard on the weather. And she came in and was holding the basil up, this, these leafy greens, uh, out of which uh, she would make a pesto. But um, I took a picture of her, and the picture um, immediately reminded me of that painting by a pre-Raphaelite, um, Holman Hunt, I think, about uh, Isabella and the pot of basil something involving decapitation and, and tears that make basil grow. But anyway, uh, this is called Corrine Among the Fronds of Basil. It's the last poem I wrote that actually got into this book, and I thought, that's a good turnaround. Write it in September. It turns up in a book, you know, months later. Corrine Among the Fronds of Basil. The leafy basil from the garden fills the kitchen with a whiff of summer's losses and frames the figures of a prepossessing girl among these fronds saved from the coming frost. She adds pine nuts and olive oil, shredded parmesan, fine crushed bulbs of garlic pressed into a greeny pesto, 
boils pasta. As if the sky weren't actually falling. Hell and high water in one dire week, the bottoms falling out of everything, 200,000 dead of pestilence, my long-lost daughter Heather lost for keeps, halfway through a leap year, taking her leap into the beckoning embrace of the abyss, desperate for good riddance, cold release. We got her home, alas, to let her go again. And good John Lewis gone to his reward, who stood upright on Black Lives Matter Plaza, no justice, no peace, our marching anthem. To see him crossing <coughs> Edmund Pettus Bridge, bludgeoned, horizontal, and victorious, and word will come tonight of Barb B.G., notorious for justice and dissent, equality of genders, loves, and sexes, against all poverties and contagions. Corrine upholds these end-of-summer leaves with gratitude against begrudgery. Here's a poem that I'm certain was written by Matthew Sweeney, but whenever I questioned him about it, he said, no, no, that's, that's not one of mine. So after going through a, a catalog of poets, I thought wrote it, um, and they all denied it, so I claimed it myself. I, <laughs> I, I, we used to get on the train and come out to Evesham and Cheltenham and Ledbury, and we'd trade lines back and forth in a kind of contest. We do... Poets have more time than they should have to do these things. So maybe it's one of those joint enterprises, but anyway, I've got it. It's in the book. It's mine. It's called Accordion. We'd been invited to a neighborhood do, a graduation maybe, or a barbecue. We were underdressed, the missus and me, but I had my accordion, which is unfailingly a compensation. Whatever happened, there was this shoot like the slides we played on in our childhoods, it ascended from the center of the neighbor's yard into the heavens beyond the sky, like a spiral staircase without the steps. And it came into my brain they'd like to hear something from the topmost heights of it, so I began to climb on all fours with the accordion on my back, wheezing out the occasional chord, myself huffing and puffing with the baffling labor of it. My wife's sweet face gaping heavenward, the locals wide-eyed with a spectacle. Everything was shaky at the top, which I accomplished. I know that for sure, though I can't for the life of me remember what number I played them or the applause that would have just as certainly followed. We were fairly winded, the accordion and I, what with the whole performance. <clears throat> and... Uh, just down the street, on the way here actually, we passed the Malthouse Cafe. Some of you probably know it and enjoy it. I, um, I spent uh, um, an early afternoon there on the way to this very hall to hear someone else read a few years ago. And I was there with uh, Corrine and she was drinking things that I'd never seen before and at the same time, fingering these, uh, this sort of wall ivy. And then as I try, I hope I had some training, I, I hope I trained her to ask what 
is this? Because I think we, we should know the things we don't know. And so she asked the wait person, and the wait person, as you often find in this country, knows more than anyone, and uh, came back with, uh, with a, a, a toe in the door of this poem, which I've called Digitus Paterni Dextri, which is that finger of God you see connecting with Adam on the, yeah. Toad flax, pennywort, mother of thousands, Symbolaria moralis ivy blooms out of the brick wall of the cafe garden, sunlit in the common era. It is late June on Church Lane in Ledbury, Herefordshire. And we have settled in for cakes and tea, a bottle of designer lemonade, Fentiman's natural, botanically brewed, before we go to the poetry due. Your fingers combing through the pink wallflowers, you query the waitress, might she know the name, these symbol-shaped leaves, these wee snapdragons? Kenilworth, Ivy, wandering sailor, it's everywhere and come back every year. The languor of your hands loose scrutiny, like a monk at manuscript, or a nun at beads, or Adam naming animals and Eve, or arching towards creation's outstretched reach whilst lazing in the ceiling's masterpiece. We weary of sorting the beauty of being. And um, <clears throat> the last time I was in London, I think in 2020, I uh, went in search of the image that forms my new and selected essays, which uh, is mostly covered up by the, the cover. But underneath the cover is this engraving that uh, is reputed to exist at the Welcome Collection in London. So I, I wanted to see the thing more or less in the flesh, so I made my way to the Welcome Collection, and I let them know that I was there on official business to see this piece of art, this engraving by James Newton uh, from the late 18th century. And um, they disabused me of my pen and other things with which I might do art terror on it and sat me in a clean room and someone with gloves on came and brought the vessel which, be, which held the thing. They opened it, put it in front of me and left me alone with it for 10 minutes, which I thought showed great faith. And I. I beheld it for that, that 10 minutes and came away changed for life and wrote this poem. The, the, the engraving um, memorializes uh, the, and the poem based on it, memorializes the um, episode, I think in the chapter of Mark, it's in three of the four gospels, so we know it's probably true. And, um, <coughs> but it's when, uh, the paralytic is brought uh, to the house in Capernaum that Jesus used as his headquarters. And because of the crowd, uh, his pals, four of them, had to carry him up on a pallet up and dig out the tiles and sods that made for the roof and lower your man down um, to the foot of his healing and his forgiveness. And uh, of course, the forgiveness comes first, but the begrudgers, the scribes and Pharisees, 
were not impressed. So Jesus, knowing that he really did want to impress them, said, watch this, stand and walk. And your man does. And, uh, and the outstretched hand of that healing is the centerpiece of this, this engraving. So anyway, but they the, the title of the artwork and the poem reverses. Uh, it, it says he's healed first and then forgiven. But it's, so the title is The Sick of the Palsy Healed and His Sins Forgiven. This uh, will remind some of you of the episode as Heaney, the late great um, uh, neighboring poet, um, recorded in his poem, Miracle, in which he said, the miracle, of course, is that we have such friends to get us where we need to go. Um, the rest is gravy. But to have friends who would carry you up and let you down. And it reminded me of nothing so much as when they let Seamus down into the grave in Balahi on the ropes towards whatever was next for him, you know. The graver's title tells it in reverse. So, which the greater miracle were asked? To cleanse the soul or cure paralysis, the mercy hidden or made manifest. The King James Version has forgiveness first, the sin's remission quite invisible, and then to quiet the scribes and Pharisees, arise, he says, take up your bed and walk. Wherefore be grudgers and their begrudging talk of blasphemy and sacrilege are hushed. The palsied man stands up and saunters off, bedroll and ropes gathered under his arm. Behold, we never saw a thing like that. The Savior is plain on this. It's faith that saves. The boyos on the roof like pallbearers delivered of their corpse and coffin straps, their thankless jobs all heft and heave and lift, done for yet another day, so they begin taking up their shovels, sods, and tiles to mend the mess they've made of it again. I love that story. I, I just, I love the faces in the, in the illustration. If you get down to London, go into the welcome uh, collection and have, uh, it's telling me it's time to stand. This watch tells me what to do all the time and then it's very proud of me for doing it. You've accomplished this. And I've set the settings to, you know, if I stand up brushing my teeth, I've accomplished most of the day's exercise, but <laughs> the watch is pleased. I, um, I'd like to f finish with two poems um, and I appreciate John. Um, um, you unleashing some longish poems because not only are they mighty works of words, but um, well, I just appreciate you doing it. I get one of those um, calendars every year with a new word on it for every day. So you go around saying imbroglio a lot <laughs> before noon, and then you incorporate it into your language. And, your friends say, ah, he got another calendar. So, <laughs> One year uh, in March, the, uh, the word was ekphraxis. You all know this word. It's become, you know, it's, it's, it's become very popular among poets about taking visual images and um, making a poem out of it. I know that this was supposed to be a haiku, possibly a sonnet, 
but it goes on a bit as things do when you're locked in to the same place and can't talk to anybody for a long time with a dog. A very nice dog, but a dog nonetheless. Ekphrasis. I took this photo of Corrine last year and wrote a poem later the same day, which was the day she saved the basil in my garden from the frost she heard was nigh. Her standing in my kitchen holding those greens, the aspects of her, that look of longing, put me in mind of William Holman Hunt's old painting of John Keats's poem called Isabella or the Pot of Basil, inside of which the head of Lorenzo, her murdered lover, was hidden from view, so we keep ogling Isabella, her languor and pining, her ample bosom, who has the face of Hunt's departed wife, who died in childbirth some months before he finished this canvas. It's an old story, refashioned by Keats from Boccaccio, the way all poets borrow, great ones steal, according to T.S. Eliot, that thief, or was it Picasso? God only knows the way one image leads to another, the snapshot, the sudden spark, the scene that brings something separate into being, that seedling becoming something the seed could never itself have quite imagined, connecting the bits of one creation to bits and pieces of another, the rooting, ramifying urgency that pushes the new thing into the light. The poem that I made that day became one of many poems in a book of poems called Bone Rosary, a collection of beads by which we keep track of being and ceasing to be, those living mysteries in light of which all we do is sit in silence. My daughter used to call me El Jefe, when she was working at the funeral home before that saddened panic rose in her, they diagnosed as schizophrenia. It kept her estranged from us for 15 years before she took her leap from off the bridge in Marin County, California. The Golden Gate became her bitter end. My friend Joan painted a portrait of her. We gather what we can of brokenness into a place where we might reframe it a restoration or a sort of wholeness in the horrid face of desolation. There's more to this, of course, but mystery wants more than anything, alas, our silence. So back to the photo and the poem. Ekphrasis with a side of illusion, the senses and the imagination free-ranging in the way they take their cues from life's long study and experience. A Colombian poet named Tallulah Flores, which I Englished as Tallulah Flowers, a plural noun or verb, it's hard to know, she asked, would I read some of my poems for their festival, Poem Arillo, featuring poets of the Caribbean? <clears throat> Except for stays in the Lesser Antilles, Cancun and Castle de Campo once, I couldn't figure out why they'd asked me, but chose some poems to do with flowers, with gardening and growing things, with all Montbrisha and rhododendron. So Corinne among the fronds of basil became Corinne entre las joyas de Bajaca. And when a visiting theologian spoke the Spanish version of the poem, for she in fact had worked the Caribbean in service of her church, the Anglicans, all the versions of it seemed connected. 
the mysteries of love and death and silence, the sound, the sense, the sight of timely harvest, the women in my kitchen and my poems, the beauty of their being and their gifts whereby the broken heart is nonetheless still beating out its possibilities. <clears throat> a moment of balm, a tonic possibly, a romance involving flowers, their meaning, trees of knowledge of good and evil, Romeo, Juliet, Flores, and Blanchefleur, Adam and Eve, I'm living in a Leonard Cohen tune involving a woman and a river, a distant country and the theater, something on canvas cast in bronze or song by which mammals discern the way of other mammals. Let us grant that it involves an island, a bridge, a ferry, a water crossing, an open grave, an empty sky, the sun, the moon, the loving body and ourselves alone. Sometimes the pool of sorrow overflows. Sometimes the shit that happens overwhelms. And still the unanticipated gift appears, that sudden beneficence beyond imagination. There it is. The moonlight in the bedroom window gives a glimpse of her, naked and unabashed, and curling into your embrace with ease and as if she came to reckon with your pain, the long years of damage and estrangement, the thankless, luckless, sorry circumstance of being you, yourself, in the sore world. And these are surplus to requirements. Her willing body adjacent to yours and her pressing herself onto yourself, an abundance much like grace itself is, unearned and undeserved, much the same as creation's favor with its creatures the fervor of lovers for lovemaking, the reverence for beauty and for being, the texture of longing touch exposes or liberties taken in smallish doses, a sudden catch of breath, a sudden seeing, or the way that Isabella's weeping never brought Lorenzo back, but greened the basil and beckoned the poets and the painters to make something out of such contingencies the way Corinne could sense the coming frost, or hankering for pasta and pesto sauce, the common table shared, the table talk with fellows, neighbors, and passers-by, by which we get a sense of the connections, a sense with all that we are not alone in our heartbreaks, longings, and bereavements, our losses, lack of lux, the brief achievements we might be with any luck remembered for. <clears throat> oh, thank you. Lately, I've been traveling with a theologian from Canada. These are all improvements for men of uh, my extraction. And uh, this is a poem called Her Jams of Various Berries. The photos with her brimming buckets full Cardboard boxes, baskets of blueberries, fall raspberries, plump June strawberries, grinning in her Guatemalan overalls make manifest the undeservedness essential to the mysteries of love. Such evident abundance, nonetheless, a metaphor for offering oneself as curates do at Eucharistic feasts, 
which shares an etymology with grace and gratitude. All liturgies of thanks, these open arms, this beckoning embrace, chrismy fingers, gifts of tongues and tastes between the carnal and the incarnate. And I'll finish with a, a poem that um, Neil Astley was reminding me I read last time. And I'd gotten in the habit, and I don't want to get out of it, of saying thanks for your attention. As John mentioned, to have a room full of um, otherwise kindly people listening to this stuff. It's like going to the shrink and not getting a bill for it. We're, <laughs> we're deeply improved by it, I, I have to tell you. <clears throat> and thanks is what I mean to say by that. This is a poem. Uh, it was meant to be a sonnet written for my 52nd birthday a good few years ago now. But I, I, could, I figured I had a toe in the door of mortality then. Nothing has put me off that path, I assure. But I thought a, a sonnet every so often would be no bad thing because um, I know the rules and I live by them. And uh, I could get it usually done within the half a week, you know. And, the thing is, when you get to line 12, you know you gotta start wrapping it up. You know, The job is fairly straightforward. Well, when I finished this one, there were 15 lines, which accounts for the a brilliant title, which is called Refusing at 52 to Write Sonnet. It's a good save, I think. And it also goes to prove that the older we get, the less we count. That works in a lot of ways. <laughs> And you can try it at home. I encourage you to. It came to him that he could nearly count how many midsummers he had left to him in increments of 10, or say 11, thus 63, 74, 85. He couldn't see himself at 96, humanity's advances notwithstanding in healthcare self-help or new age regimens, what with his habits and family history, the end, he thought, is nearer than you think. The future, thus confined to its contingencies, the present moment opens like a gift. The drizzly month, the gray week, the blue evening, the hour's routine, the minutes passing glance, all seem like God sends now, and what to make of this? At the end, the word that comes to us is thanks. Thanks.